Welcome to the Axial Podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who is compelled to build their own enduring business. Okay, I think we're recording. It's always really weird to press record, isn't it, Justin? So, uh, really yeah. excited to have you. Uh, have, a, have you on this podcast? I think you're number four or no, no, number eight, actually. I did, I did a bunch in the beginning. But uh, yeah, really excited to have you. You're one of the geniuses of biotech, but you haven't had any social media presence ever. So this is kind of the beginning of uh, a new era where people finally realize how smart and talented you are and you know get more visibility for Sarani. So uh, hope we do well. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, be fun to chat. Uh, it's always a little uh, strange to make things public, but I, I enjoy it. And I, I enjoy ch- chatting with people. I enjoy the community. So see what we Justin, can do. Exactly. Justin Barlow. Justin and Colin Farlow. You guys like the Wright brothers, but for proteins. So you're going to make exactly. proteins Can't forget Colin. You're going to make protein slides. Everybody loves brothers. In Amer- it's American. It's such American. Two brothers building companies. It's just part of Americana. So, uh, you know, you got to tell your story. You, you, you and Colin, you're going to start taking like Patrick John Collison pictures one day. Yeah, it's going to be dope. It'll be good. I hope so. We, we, we tend not to take the, the, the fancy pictures just like the social media, but we have a good time. So you, uh, you, you're going to do it like, yeah, you, you're going to do it. This is the beginning of a new era. Uh, All right. Justin Carlos. Seriously, this is, this is it. This is the, this is the, this is the, this is the uh, round, whatever. This is, you're coming, this is like you're coming out. This is Diana Ross song, you're coming out. I'm coming out. Oh, man. You know, this right. is you. But let's talk about, okay, we're going to talk about your background first, and we're going to go into Sarani, and we're going to okay. kind of, a lot of your great ideas are in SynBio, and we could probably talk for a few hours, but we're going to keep it short, so we have a, we're pretty busy. So, yeah, to start with the conversation, um, yeah, we'd love to, like, kind of, I think for just for uh, everyone's sake, especially the up-and-coming scientist and founder, kind of your background. You know, how did you get into science, biology? How did you learn, you know, one thing about Justin not only an incredible immunologist, biologist, but like a world-class programmer. How did you do both of those things? So what do you want to talk about? I would love to hear your kind of origin stories. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as science itself, uh, more just a curiosity of, of how things worked, uh, philosophical curiosity. Uh, so I actually wasn't, it wasn't obvious to me that I was going to be a scientist uh, early on, uh, but I really enjoyed trying to understand how things worked. So a lot of the, the early work I did was early uh, studies I did were, were in physics and in chemistry, trying to really understand that. And biology only came later. Uh, I actually studied a lot of the, the philosophy uh, of science. Uh, and I found that to be almost as interesting as the science itself uh, in different tools and ways to get at what was uh, important or what was foundational. Uh, by the time I got to grad school uh, at UCSF, the, the, the biology had, I think, reached a point where uh, you could start to program it, you could start to think about it in a technical way as an engineering discipline, as opposed to more of a, just a cataloging discipline. And that really intrigued me. So I had a little bit of background, had a bunch of friends who were really good at programming, uh, even in middle school and high school, and they taught me how to program. And with that, built all sorts of little utilities and fun little things, but never never professionally. Uh, but that was enough to be able to be part of the community. And I found these communities helpful and being uh, 
uh, in San Francisco is part of that community of, of programmers as well as scientists. Uh, and then things like uh, Hacker News and Y Combinator, I think, have done a really good job of of allowing people to to think about the technology and software and software engineering and programming in a way that uh, really inspires people. So cool. Yeah, I mean, Justin's a really active participant of Hacker News. So. Mm. Uh, you check Read him out more than, 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 than chat, but that's check, okay. it, check this comments out. I think he's pretty good. He has good comments. He's very thoughtful comments. And uh, I remember talking to Colin and he was like, so uh, yeah, Justin just picked up like objective C real quick or things like that. Or he knew how to just code and go lang. I think, I think Serrani is coded in go still, I think. Uh, yeah, we, but, we, we do quite a bit in go. Um, it's, it's a, it's a fun, fun language to use, uh, but best tool for the best job. Exactly. Okay. And so you guys grew up in Indiana. You know, I love people from the Midwest. I grew up in Orange County, but something about the Midwest is romantic, actually, to me. I don't know why. Uh, it's just growing up in it's just growing up in a boring area with open fields, right? So it's a great place to grow up because it's safe and you can do anything you want. Uh, and so, what was the kind of going from Indiana to San Francisco? Was there a logic there to pick UCSF? Was Pacific Lab? Was it part of a grand plan to start a company? Or kind of what was the logic to go from Indiana to uh, SF? And this is this is well like ten years ago, I think. So maybe a little more than that. Um, I, more than that, actually. I, 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 found, <laughs> I found Indiana. What was nice about it is uh, it was full of of life, literally. Again, I spent a lot of uh, time outside in the woods, uh, surrounded by plants and animals. I, I didn't find that boring at all. Actually, I really enjoyed that. Um, at UCSF, it offered a uh, for for grad school. So I guess to step back and to be clear, um, Colin's my brother. He helped me co-found Sorotny, and we both grew up in Indiana. Uh, both went to uh, Indiana University at Bloomington. And while I was there, uh, Bruce Alberts, uh, who was one of a few uh, prominent professors at UCSF, had helped create a program called the Tetrad Program. And he was actually giving a talk at UCSF it was not actually for the students, it was actually for the faculty. And it was about this idea that many grad students didn't necessarily want to continue in academia, and that was hard for the professors themselves to acknowledge, um, but it was an important acknowledgement. And when you could acknowledge that, you could actually help the students even better, but you could also help society. And so the Tetrad program at UCSF had deliberately carved out space to uh, make it useful for the grad students to teach or to think about public policy uh, as well as uh, business or law and so they recognized that not every grad student would become a, an academic and i appreciated that at, at the time i actually thought i would be a, a more academic scientist but i really appreciated that idea that scientists should be part of the greater community and i actually didn't know about ucsf until he was there i'm like but that's the program i wanted to to, to think about so cool bruce um, alberts is a legend too like bruce alberts, he's like the biochemistry textbook king or something absolutely <laughs> truly on, on the textbooks literally um he's on the textbook really guy too yeah he's pretty um, nice I, i've uh, never met him but I, I saw him on like i see his lectures he seems like a pretty chill person so you're ucsf Mm -hmm. um, and I might get some shit for the Indiana thing. I love the Midwest. It is kind of boring, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful, though. I might get, I might get some crap for that, but so well. Um, and so, yeah, UCSF, um, you know, you're working in Zev Gardner's lab. Uh, you know, yeah. Zev was like the first grad student from David Liu's lab and Bertozzi's lab. Mm -hmm. What was the kind of logic to join Zev's lab? 
uh, at the time and kind of maybe touch upon your research there and how that, yeah. Yeah, I, I rotated through a, a number of uh, really wonderful labs. Um, uh, Zev was a young professor uh, and I was one of his first grad students um, and it offered a freedom of projects and in retrospect, a diversity of projects because I helped to work with a number of my colleagues and uh, that was a wonderful opportunity to not have just a single project that I called my own, but to be able to, to have uh, inputs and to learn from uh, my, my friends and peers. So uh, the, the projects were interesting. I didn't realize at the time quite how much of a synthetic biology approach that we were going to use uh, in, 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 that, in that work. Um, but I really enjoyed uh, that. Um, oh yeah, Zev. I mean, it's always good to join a young lab, and you know, you're the. Maybe we talk a little bit about timing then. Maybe it's one thing about your scientific career and that set up Serotony. Is you joined UCSF at a really interesting time. This is when CAR T was coming online. This is where you know Wendell Lim's work, a colleague of mm -hmm. you know Zev Gardner's work, kind of started cell design labs, got acquired by Gilead, and you've seen a lot of success with CAR T. What kind of can you talk about timing? You yeah, know, yeah. Kind of so that actually happened later. So at first, uh, it, it was it was really fun to see the engineering aspects and to see uh, what were kind of considered toys, I guess, uh, actually working. Um, so I remember uh, one of the, 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 the fellow grad students who was ahead of me, uh, like Anselm Levskaya, had helped to create some of these optogenetic sensors. Uh, and it was just incredible that you could take uh, a protein from plant and put it in E. coli or in yeast, and now the yeast or plant would respond to light in ways that you could program. You could tell the new organism, or this organism, how to respond uh, genetically in different ways. Uh, and that was really interesting to me because that, that started to look like the, the programming that I was used to, and it kind of spurred that engineering mindset. And it turned out this was happening not just at, you know, at that point, but there were other uh, features being built, uh, new new toys that were starting to be programmed. And this was the beginnings of synthetic biology. And it had been going on for a while, but I was watching it you know, in my neighbors. Um, and about halfway through, you know, CAS9 was discovered and we saw lectures about why that could be interesting and could be the future um, before it was. Uh, and, and same with some of these other uh, synthetic biology tools that actually became useful uh, and actually became uh, what could be therapeutically useful. So it's fun to cool. watch that happen. Yeah, I think this is around the kind of 2012, 2014 yeah. timeframe um, and where kind of um, a lot of these new modalities are having some success or getting discovered. And and so you're kind of seeing this, you're you're kind of developing a set of tools that are related. Um, mm -hmm. now, we, now, now we've established, you know, Justin's a genius, mm -hmm. multidisciplinary, curious, studying philosophy and biology and everything, you know? One thing about Justin, he can talk about anything. I can talk to Justin about anything, actually. We talk about Chinese history and the warring states, maybe. And we also talk about, you know, physics of something else. So that's one thing about Justin. He's really fun to talk to. Uh, now we established that, let's talk about Sarani. Let's spend the most of the time talking about Sarani. Um, <laughs> kind of, you're at UCSF, you're building these sets of tools, uh, engineering various proteins, you're seeing colleagues have success in, you know, either CAR T cell therapies or gene editing. You see, you see some early signs there. What was the motivation to start Sarani? How did you get the guts to start a company? 
uh, and then, yeah. I think one thing was watching others do it. And, and I know this is becoming a theme, but when you see that it can be done, you're like, oh, I, I could try that. Um, Internally at UCSF, uh, you know, it's the same crew of people uh, who had that insight, but you know, Reg Kelly, who I actually met right as I was uh, interviewing at UCSF, had gone on to create what became QB3 uh, and the ability to incubate companies uh, out of the UC system. And Reg Kelly did part of it and Doug Crawford did the other. Uh, and so they had a program to, to create a startup, a startup in a box. They'd help you incorporate, help you get set up. Um, and they'd really help you start to get those first grants from uh, SBIR grants. And at the exact same time that I was graduating, uh, my brother, uh, Colin, was, was, was graduating from law school uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. And not only did, were there companies coming out of the, the, the bio side of things, but in San Francisco, you're also in kind of the newer version of Silicon Valley, you know, you're a little further north than the true Silicon Valley, but you're also surrounded by companies. And I could look out my lab window and I could see, you know, Reddit's headquarters and Adobe's over there and, you know, Uber's over there and Lyft's there. It's like, okay, well, um, just try it. Uh, so Colin and I initially created uh, Sratni as a software company to make the design of those synthetic tools that I really enjoyed, those, those synthetic biology proteins, uh, the tools to make that efficient, the design of those objects efficient, the design of those objects uh, predictable, uh, and to couple the design with what you actually wanted to accomplish. A lot of the design tools at that time were, how do you manufacture it? How do you, how do you build the DNA and make sure the DNA works uh, but a lot of the end product that you were working with was the protein that was encoded by the DNA. So you want to know the properties of what you were at, at the end of the of, of, of the product rather than the properties of the manufacturing. So that's cool. really we, we built that software to start off with. Cool. Yeah, you definitely you definitely were you you definitely were living the full San Francisco, San Francisco experience. I think you guys I remember you were you living in Tenderloin for some time. Oh, yeah. In a, uh, on a on a couch and. Rent, uh, <laughs> definitely the full San Francisco experience. Full, Justin and Colin have the full outrageous rent. experience. Paying a really high rent in the Tenderloin. Uh, now, you know, Justin, you live in a really good neighborhood now. I'm really happy for you. You're safe now. Uh, I remember you guys living in Tenderloin. I was, like, I was, a, little, I was a little nervous for you. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but cool. Let's talk about Pinecone. I think you were calling the software Pinecone at the time, and maybe yeah. you still are. And so, um, how did you think about defining the problem set? So you kind of have this inspiration sort of company. You're seeing kind of opportunities and protein engineering in general. Mm -hmm. For Pinecone, how did you find a problem set, and and what, how did you iterate across like you know building what people want? Because uh, at the time you you know you had other right. type of tools out there. How did you end up finding like applications for kind of this generalizable software you were building out? It was initially motivated by my work as a grad student. Um, I happen to be working on a protein uh, called Notch. Uh, Notch is a ridiculous protein. It is a transmembrane protein. It is enormous. It is floppy. Uh, it is uh, cleaved. It has every problem that any protein engineer would not want to have in the in the protein that they were studying. I didn't quite realize that until later, um, but it forced me to have to be a little creative and made a lot of tools that other kind of protein engineering uh, 
efforts might have, those tools weren't accessible to me. Um, but what was also really interesting about Notch at the same time uh, was Notch was a philosophically interesting protein because it was made of components. And the components are found in single-celled organisms. But when you put those components together into one protein, uh, Notch is likely the protein which allowed for multicellularity to come about. So philosophically, it has all the components that all other organisms have, but if you rearrange them into the right way, you're actually able to get this enormous uh, uh, explosion of, of function of life itself. And so taking a little bit of inspiration from that and saying, what if we could decompose or you know, deconstruct um, the proteins, both of like notch, but these other proteins, as well as from the rest of the proteome, could we rearrange them and create new proteins that gave human cells new functions? And again, I was watching that happen over and over again, watching you know, simple things like GFPs and tags and, and, and halo tag and clip tag be used to these effects. And it was very hard to say, what's the best one? Where should I put it? How should I do these things? And these kinds of protein design had nothing to do with a structure of a protein. Um, it was very much trying to figure out uh, how do I build uh, and make the cell have the function that I want. Um, cool. So we built the software to catalog the components, to make the components easy to understand. You know, GFP, rather than having this long, enormous sequence that is not readable by a human, um, we gave it a little blob that was green because GFP is green fluorescent protein. So it should be green. Uh, and we didn't know, uh, or we don't know as humans, what these many of these proteins look like because these are all the proteins that don't have crystal structures. So we would just give them icons and we'd give them unique icons and that gave it a, a game-like uh, uh, creativity where you could start to, uh, when you're a grad student, you build your little presentations and your posters, you empathize with the, the creatures that you've made, even if they're little proteins. And you spend six years playing with these little creatures. Uh, and if you can make them uh, empathetic and you can enjoy them and you, you get attached to them. And I felt that, you know, one big circle uh, representing your protein you spent six years on uh, didn't give you the kind of, of empathy you needed for something you spent uh, so much effort thinking about. So we tried to give all the, the little components uh, some kind of uh, feature that, that, that we could work with. And that helped us build and design and catalog them. Okay, cool. Because this context notch is a very important developmental pathway. You like learn and Bruce Albert teach you that or something, I don't know. And Notch is a receptor and a delta is the ligand and it leads to a lot of signaling and then you can create synthetic versions that lead to different orthogonal signaling pathways in cells and thing called SID Notch that was really big at UCSF at Wendell's Limbs Lab and that you know kind of was kind of useful uh, uh, for various applications. And just move into then like kind of this idea of designing multi-domain proteins. You're alluding to, right? There's big these big proteins have multiple domains really large, hard to crystallize, and, and, and if you want to create synthetic versions, oh yeah, yeah, you create a whole, whole different catalog of different proteins that then are almost impossible to crystallize at scale. And so you kind of need a new language to analyze these kind of large, complicated proteins that have a lot of high value. And you're kind of talking about this too in terms of labeling and creating creatures. Okay, that's cool. That's a cool, kind of cool analogy. How did you, when you were starting Pinecone off and talking to customers and thinking about the problem to solve for especially this big problem of designing a multi-domain protein. The ultimate astronomy is doing, right? You guys design multi-domain proteins using machine, uh, what's it called? Machine guided evolution. That's your term. It's a good term, right? 
Uh, I love it. And That's so, right. uh, how did you think about initially that that common language for designing yeah. these types of proteins? Well, what what was happening was uh, Colin and I uh, we we'd sit on the couch and we'd be working on the software. Um, but the data that goes into the software are the, those proteins, they are those machines. And every time uh, a new paper would come out, uh, we would go and try to find the sequence, which was stupidly hard sometimes. Um, but once we found the sequences, you realize this fancy new paper that gave a fancy new name to something is actually just recombining three objects, putting those three together. It's like, okay, cool. Put that into the software. Um, and these just kept coming out. Every week you'd have new tools, new, new, new objects, new proteins um, made in this way. It became clear that there were a few that were uh, uh, financially or, 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 or therapeutically useful. So there were a lot of proteins that were being made for basic discovery. And we actually did a lot of work there and we had some really great collaborations. Um, but as a business, it became clear that there were some of these where if you could create new ones, uh, you could you could uh, actually help out therapeutically. The, specifically, the two real big categories were the gene editing tools, uh, like the, the the base editors and the the prime editors, all those things attached to Cas9, uh, and then the chimeric antigen receptors, the CARs, and for uh, going after uh, cancer uh, by changing the way a cell behaves. And in both cases, you could simplify uh, the fancy new tool that undergirds billion dollar companies to be a set of protein domains uh, that have different functions. Cas9, the, the, the piece of CRISPR uh, that allows us uh, to, to edit a human genome has two main functions. Uh, it can seek and find a specific DNA sequence, and then it can cut there. Turns out the seek and find is actually a little more difficult and a little more interesting, and you can change it real quickly just by making a new RNA. The cutting actually is not so desirable. You don't really want to cut DNA. Um, so then it became logically uh, the next step is to figure out, well, what do you want to do when you get to a particular sequence that you like? You don't want to cut. Maybe you want to change or maybe you want to recombine or maybe you want to, to integrate. And so each of those ideas uh, now spawn an effort to go find the protein domain that will do that job. And now you've create a new tool. Uh, yep. and same thing's happening on the on the car side, something that binds to the target that you care about on the extracellular side of the cell, pass that signal through the cell, and on the intracellular side, uh, tell the cell to do something. Yeah. In the common case, it's to kill the car or kill the cancer cell. Yeah, one thing I always thought about, it's like for small molecules, we can screen maybe a billion different variants, antibodies, maybe millions, but for like something like a chimeric antigen receptor, hundreds if we're lucky at the time. Or CRISPR, maybe a little bit more than that, and you know, so Serrani is kind of helping bring multi-domain proteins to parity to other modalities. Because if you can do that, you create different variants, you can test them more easily, and you can then like you know have you, know, you can potentially discover new medicines at a faster rate. Um, and that's kind of the key, kind of at least for me, what got me excited about Serrani and what you were doing, and kind of kind of accelerating the development of these kind of new drug modalities by building like a, a kind of a a more generalizable platform and language. And so you know, you have a SAS product, you can design these proteins, can annotate them, um, and, and create new variants. And then you make a pivot toward drug development. Because mm -hmm. all in all, building SAS and biotech is too hard sometimes, most of the time, right? It's like the you have to be the exception. And so what was the logic 
to then say, okay, screw just building software. We need to make our own drugs. We need to actually generate our own data internally. What was the kind of the moment that made you, or maybe set a moment that made you make that pivot? And then that can then, we can talk about then kind of how that set up your kind of current trajectory and current uh, kind of updates on the underlying platform and business. Yeah. Um, uh, you learn a lot by creating a company and, and jumping into the fire and, and trying to keep it alive and, and to make it survive. Uh, so you, you end up learning truths uh, after a while, where you, it, it, after a few months or a few years, you can distill it down to a sentence, but it takes years to, to learn that sentence. Um, the, 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 the therapeutic industry or the biotech industry um, is a strange industry because you have very few people who, there are very few purchases or transactions, unless you're literally selling the drug in a hospital. Uh, you know, many biotechs sell a single time uh, to a, a bigger company or to as an IPO. Uh, and so the economics in the market looks different than it does for somebody like uh, Adobe or, or even Uber or these other companies. So selling software that is especially the very specific software, the total number of customers that you have access to is small. Um, and then you have to think about what those customers are selling. It turns out a lot of times if they're selling a single therapeutic asset once or twice, then if your software doesn't uh, doesn't push that binary sale to be more successful or less successful, it, 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 it doesn't round very well. So uh, it became clear that the valuable thing, if you can move up the value chain towards the actual uh, IP, towards the actual composition of matter, the actual protein itself, uh, you can collect a lot more value. So we, we in order to, to get there, where we would start to be building our own designs, uh, we needed to get more data, we needed a wet lab, we needed to demonstrate that what we were doing actually got there. And that in itself is a challenge too, where uh, you it's what's so clear to you um, may not be clear to others, and you have to go and, and collect the, the capital in order to collect the data in order to prove what is what you think is is pretty straightforward um, and we had a really good team uh, of uh, we raised uh, venture capital to do that a really good team of investors uh, led by nano dimension and a really good team of employees to really get that first data to show that we could not only design these proteins in high throughput uh, in in a software sense uh, but that we could actually build them manufacture them actually get them into a laboratory and, and start to test these combinations of tens of thousands of these different designs simultaneously. Cool. And I think at the time when you kind of made that pivot, you know, I think two of the CAR T, you know, programs got approved for SEA. That Kite helps a lot. Um, it's a it's an enormous uh, financial demonstration that what you what what could be built is valuable. So yes, uh, it's not a coincidence that that uh, the approval of the first uh, CAR T therapies actually enabled that kind of forward-looking uh, uh, success. Yeah, I think a lot of Sarani stories kind of tied into kind of, you know, trust between you two and like kind of uh, really expertise, but also timing, being a little lucky. You know, some other events happen and timing then that kind important. of validates your technology and your approach and and kind of, I think it's a lot of startups, just kind of lucky events and they kind of taking advantage of those, those events and riding the wave. And so can you pivot to drug development? What were kind of the, 
how did you think about kind of building out a wet lab? How did you th how did you think about key metrics? How did you think about kind of what types of data sets you need to generate to build better models? That's always a tough problem when you start kind of these, I don't know what, I don't know what to call them, comp bio drug companies, AI drug companies, whatever you call them, but you have to ultimately generate your own data. Yeah. Uh, what, what kind of frameworks, how did you think about for Serotony, um, what types of data do you need, what type of data sets you need to generate, um, and how do you scale? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you have multiple uh, pressures and multiple problems you're trying to solve for simultaneously with never enough capital to solve for all of them. Um, so in that regard, you know, we, we tried to build data sets where every single time we did an experiment, we tried to make sure that we were uh, pushing our platform forward, we were bringing data into it, um, that we would learn something that we could use uh, later, uh, as well as something that actually could be a shot on goal, something that actually, you wanted to make sure that there was always a chance. And sometimes it's lower and you're, you're more on one side than the other. But there was always a chance that what you were building or what was in your 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 library uh, was a, a a new useful molecule or new useful protein. So uh, the the kinds of things we would do uh, we knew is a kind of a blue ocean to go looking for for these designs since much of synthetic biology at that point was kind of done one at a time. That the serendipity that you're both harvesting for the company itself you're trying to like find those rare events where, where uh, you get the timing right but you also can do that scientifically so we would try to be unbiased about what we look for and we, we would go mine inside the human proteome for for new components that we thought would be interesting even when uh, there was very little known about them there was little literature and then you try to quickly take them forward. You try to quickly take your hits and you try to quickly make sure that what you're doing is therapeutically relevant. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about the assays that we were doing. So it was not just the cool design and engineering, but how do you show that the engineering that you're doing actually can help somebody? And so we worked with uh, a lot of people, a lot of mentors to make sure that the tests that we were running were something people would care about. Cool. Yeah, I think shout out to Brian Nine. We did a podcast of him a long time ago. Shout yeah, out to Brian for helping Brian. I think Brian was pretty important. Brian was really useful <laughs> for that. For that Brian's a good guy. But here's you're talking about two things. You said some of the most insightful things you said. You said two things insightful to me. Uh, on the first part too about making that pivot to drug development. I mean, you told me mm -hmm. you know drug development's like an economic black hole for biologists, right? Where it's like if you're doing something cool in biology, you're kind of getting sucked into making a drug somehow. Right, it just is what it is. Uh, and I think on the platform side, um, kind of talking about how each experiment enables the next one. Mm -hmm. Something really a couple of years ago, Emery told me kind of this idea of versioning proteins. Yeah, And that's such a powerful framing. Just as much as you version a pair of shoes or iPhones, you can version proteins. And for Serotony, how do you think about going from a, a version one of say a car construct to get into version ten? How do you think about getting there quickly? And how do you think about like, like um, you know, going from like generating a first construct and then like thinking about okay, um, how do we generate an even better one? What how do you how do you, how do you even get there? How do you even what kind of logic do you use? Um, is it is it more kind of interpretation of data or do you implement some sort of systematic stra systematic strategy to version things quickly? Yeah, yeah. So uh, at Strategy we do both. We go from zero to one and do the invention. 
and then we go from one to and then increment the versions. Um, it was a fun thing to watch. So again, David Liu is 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 uh, the professor who's who's invented the, uh, the the base editor and the prime editor. And those by the time he published his papers, already had their versions, version base editor three and four, etc. Uh, and we watched that and and noticed that. It, it was obvious. It was clear that, that he was taking code and he was improving it. He would improve the enzymatic efficiency. He improved the way the, the proteins were, were fused together. Um, the, the homolog or ortholog of a particular domain that was better suited uh, for what he was trying to do. But the idea of the core was had remained the same. When it changed, it got a new name. Uh, so we wanted to do that. So in our context, you actually change the assays a little bit if you're going from zero to one. You know, you're looking for does it do it. And so that's much more of a screen. Does it turn on at all? So you can throw an enormous uh, variation into a pool. And if you've created your assay correctly, all you're looking for is any signal at all. Just does it turn on? That's pretty fun. Uh, when you get a hit on that, it's pretty exciting. Uh, but always, you then need to, to improve it. And that's where uh, part of our platform that's nice is it's not just a screen. We actually make sure that we know how each design behaves. So we can say, uh, let's go, let's make it better. So we can put in controls, clinical controls, or our own controls. Uh, we can make an enormous amount of variation around the island that you've already found. And you can start to, if you find these islands of stability in protein sequence space, then you need to, once you get that hit, you then need to circle around that island to find the spot that is, is most efficient. On the invention, it's just measuring, does it work as we want it or not? Does it lead to some sort of signaling or killing or does it cut DNA or edit DNA in a certain way and go from zero to infinity or something? I don't know. Um, or zero to, or go, no, go from one to infinity. Go from version right. one, like, you know, the best CAR T, CAR -T you can invent. Um, uh, you know, how do you, how do you, to do kind of machine guided evolution, as you yeah. know, Srani does, um, what are, is, that, is that more of an ability to do more experiments cheaply or is that a function of the number of metrics you capture or maybe a little bit of both like how do you how do you actually like what are the what are the enabling factors to go from version one to you know version whatever yeah so uh, to play on the term not 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 too strongly but the idea is you have variation you try to create that variation uh, and then you have some selection pressure you have some assay where you you, you read something out um, in general, the proteins we're working with are big and the, the cycle time can be long. These are mammalian cells and can't shortcut a lot of that. Uh, so we would always love to, to improve our, our cycle time and we're doing that right now. Uh, but our variation is enormous relative to other ways of, of building these kinds of proteins. Uh, so in many cases, uh, the multi-domain protein itself is a very deliberate effort by uh, usually one or a very small number of really smart people uh, really trying to do their best to predict what the best set of combinations of these components will be. But there are an enormous number of combinations of these components. And so what we've tried to do is create a, you can throw in any idea that you might have a chance of working, but we actually let the system choose which of those many, many, many medium to low percent working hypotheses will actually surface. Absolutely. I think the major breakthrough for Rodney's platform versus maybe the state of the art is like, you know, state of the art car testing is maybe hundreds of constructs, maybe thousands. Um, and in Strotney, you can go from millions 
of, of, of designs in silico and then test tens of thousands in vitro. And then that will then lead to, you know, I don't know how many designs, hundreds or tens of designs, but then ultimately you have data where you can show, you can go from millions of designs in silico to a functional molecule with, you know, better properties of maybe killing or, you know, efficacy, whatever, uh, engagement, target engagement. And so uh, when you think about creating that variation, mm -hmm. uh, what, what enables that? Is it just like, is it the software? Is it cheaper? Is it just kind of the, the way you design libraries? Um, how do you how do you like think about maximizing variation? That seems to be the, the most important metric for that second step of versioning uh, your yeah, protein. That's right. So variation is important. Um, uh, one place we seek variation is in existing protein designs from existing proteomes. If we're going to make a drug, though, we often try to stick with a human proteome so you uh, don't cause problems. Uh, but the human proteome is pretty big, and most of synthetic biology has not explored that. And then that's coupled, uh, looking for variation amongst the human proteome, is coupled with the ability to just synthesize the DNA for these things. Yeah. And you know, when I was in grad school, uh, synthesizing DNA was extremely expensive. You could do it, though, and you really could. If you had a, a design you thought would work, you could spend a couple thousand dollars to make the design. Uh, but with new uh, cloning techniques and with the, the reduced cost of DNA synthesis, you can start to be clever to actually produce thousands of designs or tens of thousands of designs by recombining some of the sequences of DNA, even if they're very long, not just mutations, but including complete orthologs to each other. And that allows you to build uh, variation very quickly. So you know, there are just over a thousand type one transmembrane domain proteins or type one transmembrane uh, receptors in the human proteome. And these are just your regular old protein that has something on the outside of the cell, crosses through the membrane, and it's got something on the inside of the cell. So it, it allows some signal to pass into the cell. And there's a thousand of them, you can start to synthesize most of those, uh, either in components uh, and reuse those components. Can't do it one at a time, but if you can do it in high throughput, you now have access to that whole proteomes worth of tools from a couple billion years of, of evolution. Cool. Yeah, I think um, you know, shout out to Twist for a lot of that work and a shout out to, uh, is Gibson Assembly still used? I think so. Yeah. Is that still the best tool for the best job. So there's, there's yeah, there's, there's lots of good uh, cloning techniques that help us. Twist has been a, uh, a useful partner uh, in, in helping us build some of these libraries. Absolutely. And so I think it seems like the software enables you to create all these invariants and then these new kind of synth uh, these kind of new synthesis tools, cloning tools allow you to test them out and kind of merging software with kind mm -hmm. of new tools allows you to right. create kind of a whole new platform that maybe wasn't possible five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, and so can you talk a little bit more about then about like uh, kind of uh, kind of you, you have this workflow to go from maybe an idea, a prom set to then IP or a, mm -hmm. a, a product. Uh, maybe we can talk about the the business model now. Um, maybe one thing you could touch upon, like um, like you know, let's talk about business model, and we'll talk about data afterwards. But how did you, how do you think about Serrani's business model? Because you have this, you have this kind of you start a software company, go to drug development, and and you you build out this platform that is really good at versioning protein, right. inventing and versioning, right? Uh, do variation of of, of of, of, of a car or CRISPR, how did you and Colin think about business model? Because you definitely are doing something a little different and be excited to talk about some of the deal, recent deals you've announced. Yeah, so there's one last step there. So the last step is you have to, 
use the platform in a therapeutic or in a in a financially useful way uh, and and so initially uh, we we built out some proof of concepts where we went around and tried to figure out what was uh, the the best way the best assays the best uh, goal uh, for a therapeutic cell therapy uh, but it was also useful to us to partner with strategic partnerships uh, people who could provide us uh, synergies where they already have some component that they have characterized and they really understand or they have some technology that allows them to already understand that that goal the therapeutic goal so to be clear, um, Srotny was started as more of a synthetic biology company. Um, that's been our expertise at building the platform. And we've actually brought on some, some, some great people who have that therapeutic uh, expertise at this point. Uh, but in the beginning, uh, that was where we thought we could partner with those who already have that, that therapeutic clarity. Um, and the two places where, where this has been uh, obviously useful are, again, the, the gene therapy context or the cell therapy context. Uh, with the gene therapies, one of the big goals is to be able to insert sequences into uh, into DNA uh, of, uh, with an arbitrary payload, make them how you want. And so um, we've been working uh, with Tesra Therapeutics, uh, a, a really uh, powerful flagship company who has uh, found some really interesting ways to to get uh, these gene therapies up and running. And so we're going to work with them to, to on their multi-domain proteins for uh, gene insertion. And we've also, on a different side of things, worked with uh, just uh, have a relationship with Janssen Therapeutics, uh, Johnson & Johnson's uh, R&D side of things, where we're going to help them build cell therapies with Im improved and novel uh, receptors for for these cells. So, uh, and in both cases, we're able to talk about that process that you talked about, where you start with uh, kind of a conception idea of what you want to achieve. You build out an enormous uh, library of variations to test as many different hypotheses as you can all at once. Uh, and at the end, uh, you're left with something that is a, a therapeutically useful uh, multi-domain protein. Yeah, well, congrats on the partnerships. I'll put the links into the description of yeah, the deal announcements, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot more. I know there's a lot more in the pipeline left. And maybe you, you, you say, yeah, these partnership, that's one part of the business model. Mm -hmm. You use your platform and you go to your partner and say, okay, they want to do something in a specific prom set, whether it's in cancer or maybe a specific modality. Or um, how do you, and, and how do you then think about uh, uh, sequencing those deals and stacking those deals? That's kind of the art of, Biopharma deal making. Maybe yep. Colin spends more of his time on that, but kind of the, the art of the deal. And then, yeah. and then how do you think about um, external versus internal versus something we'll do partnering with versus something we keep internal to Serotony? Uh, yeah. Because, yeah. So there are a few features to that. So um, one is in our case, what we have is we're starting with a platform. And, and we'll acknowledge that straight up. This is a platform technology. Um, and I think there's always this uh, push towards, you know, reversion to the mean where platform companies want to make therapeutics and therapeutic companies want to have the ability to make more than, than one by showing that they have some kind of platform. Uh, and so when does a therapeutic company uh, build out its own pipeline versus when does the therapeutic company uh, branch backwards? 
So that's that's one feature. The second is the state of the industry. So if you build out a platform company, you need uh, clients, you need you need partners, you need customers. Um, and so it's been fun to watch uh, the industry uh, see the value in the potential of these cell and gene therapies. And we've watched that happen before our very eyes, and that has enabled uh, these valuable partnerships that that are more than uh, something like a software as a service uh, from the early days. Uh, it's clear that that sometimes the the product itself can, in the therapeutic context, can be valuable. Uh, and I think that our platform is close enough to the therapeutic material. Uh, that we can start to push in that direction. And we brought on the expertise to help us do that. And we're looking to, to, to build these synthetic biology tools that control cell behavior in a way that improves these therapies beyond what currently often were built as one-offs and they're sufficient, but we think we can really improve upon them. And the space is big. There's a lot of things that a programmed cell or a programmed protein can do. Uh, a lot of different targets, a lot of indications, and whole new sets of modalities that are enabled by uh, this kind of programmed biology. Absolutely, I think. Uh, yeah, I think partnerships help scale platforms in a Absolutely. less dilutive way. You know, dilution, and then is really important. Uh, my worst enemy, um, and. Uh, you know, my worst enemy. I, I I have nightmares about dilution, and nightmares. I have, I have a cold. I wake up in cold sweats about recaps and <laughs> you know stuff like that. Uh, but then you know, on the opposite side too, once you get scale, you can then do things, do experiments that no one else can do. Yeah. Uh, and it comes the data for serotonin. It's exciting. You've kind of shown an ability to invent a new mm -hmm. construct, version it, and then mm -hmm. generate some really exciting data internally. And so uh, I think I think the world will begin to see all the stuff you've been doing the last few years and begin to see, appreciate, well, once you get to scale, you can start doing things that maybe you could screen a larger number of variants and that can lead them to kind of constructs that other people just couldn't even discover at all. Uh, and so it, it enable new types of cell therapies and a lot more. Um, yeah. There, there's, uh, back to the kind of timing issue, um, you, it's nice to work with technologies or to, to ground our own work on technologies that are themselves scaling. It's a little scary because you don't want to be caught where you need that technology, but it hasn't scaled yet. Yeah. But it's a really nice feeling where you can ride the wave of, of the technology itself. So software helps us. Um, that's already scaled, but everybody knows how to scale that. But it is scalable, so we can scale our software pretty well. Uh, the synthetic biology side, again, uh, is scalable and it's taken a while for it to become as cheap as it is to, to synthesize the DNA and the sequencing itself also is scalable. You can crank that up, you can parallelize it, uh, you can do many projects all at once. And so that is another feature of kind of the platform uh, that allows you to take on uh, lots of different projects and not just have one, all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, I think it's a really nice place to be to be a market leader in a emerging market, emerging category. I think Serotony is the, the, the market leader for the design of multi-living proteins, right? Just the data shows that and you have the technology tools to do that. And so, yeah, I think uh, as cell therapies are more successful, Serotony, you have a lot more success. Um, and so, okay, we talk about Serotony, 
um, mm-hmm. talked about your you know, kind of the platform, the business model, kind of kind of any outstanding problems, you know, as you kind of built this company up, but that's just more generalizable to other companies. You know, one thing I see in all these companies is this idea of like how to actually generate the right data for models. Buddy Jacob Oppenheim from EKRX, he had this concept of doing the unphysical experiment to set the boundaries for models. Do do the experiment that you wouldn't really do that doesn't create value, but it's valuable for a model uh, to kind of know the boundaries. Like any problems like that, maybe that's a problem, but any more generalizable problems you're kind of experiencing as Rodney that like maybe other companies are facing and kind of any ideas to solve them or, you know, maybe startup ideas and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that it is important to be able to communicate your results uh, to others as much as it is to be able to, to to generate really cool science. And there's always a little bit of a tension between doing uh, an experiment that's that's obvious, that's easy, that will will be uh, less incremental versus doing kind of the right experiment, the big way that's going to be expensive and uh, require a lot of resources. Uh, and I don't actually know that there's a right answer to when you have to choose. Do I go all in on the one experiment that's going to be the big one, or do I do a few smaller ones with the budget that I have right now? Uh, but it's a choice that you constantly have to, to weigh. Uh, it's And you have to make those choices not just based on the good science, but on considerations of communication. You have to be able to communicate to your employees and to your uh, investors and to your partners. And so there are really good examples of creating data that helps you get uh, a deal or helps you get fundraising or helps you hire even uh, that, that, that allow people to see inside of, of what you're trying to do. Interesting. And so I think it's, it's one of the, the, the lessons there. That's pretty insightful, actually. <laughs> actually, and Colin for that one. That's, that's Colin and I spent a lot of time chatting wow. about a lot of these ideas. So well, even me, two you brains this, here. Uh, you have this idealized thing of platform well. companies that you're supposed to generate these huge data sets and, you know, and be comprehensive. But then when you're in the weeds of a building a company, sometimes you need to generate the data that is valuable at the time. Um, and kind of balancing the act between doing something that's systematic versus kind of what's kind of needed. Um, any types of anecdotes or stories from Shrani you can like discuss that like maybe you're like that. Nothing confidential though. If it's, if it's all confidential. We can just go beyond it. Just talk about something else. Um, uh, I I, th- I think it's been it's been fun to. Uh, little related but not entirely related when when you get to be unbiased and when you get to to kind of let the a, a platform that you have shine and you trust it and you have to trust it because you don't know what the, at the end of the day the biology wins the science wins reality wins you don't get to tell it what to do um but when you say look i think there should be something here uh and you run the experiment uh, and you pull something out uh, it's, it's often pretty exciting that you get a hit or you get a result that matches your theory. And what's really fun is when you go back and you try to figure out, you know, what's going on here. Uh, you realize that there was ambiguity in the literature or the literature would never have predicted this, that this would have been way down on the list of what would have been expected, but that by trusting the process, by doing the right experiment, by letting it, the, the science work itself out, um, you found something in a way that other people couldn't, and you found something that's that's impressive. So uh, it's, it's a good feeling when you do get to run that that big experiment uh, that really 
proves uh, your point. Cool. Okay. Uh, great answer. I mean, one thing too, like you and Colin, you guys progressing as leaders where you guys, you know, I can see you guys as public CEOs one day. You guys have good answers. Like you get, yeah, you're getting the, the public CEO persona. Mm, all I love right, it. Right. Uh, did I ask you a question? I don't know if I'm working on that. But example, I... And you just gave me some cool kind of overview. I love it. Maybe talk about more about your transition as leaders. Last thing to talk about. Uh, <laughs> we can talk about, uh, you know, one thing I've, love about you too you guys so such empathetic leaders incredible managers i've seen you kind of really be thoughtful at team building and who to hire how to construct culture um what have you learned as going from a you know grad student to build serrani's a SaaS company to all the way to leading this huge team recruiting executives any kind of lessons you learn from be, uh, like becoming a better leader because i've definitely i've definitely seen it right you know you and colin have become definitely better 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 leaders and then and you guys are going to get better any kind of key lessons you learned journey so far yeah i mean it's it's a different job so as a scientist you're trained to do science and that's one thing uh when you jump into the deep end you have to learn these other things you have to want to do these other things and you don't even know how valuable they are until you get into them uh the, the business side of things is really important bd is a whole different language uh leadership is a whole different different skill set um, and I think it's, in, uh, at least from my perspective, it's been helpful to be uh, humble. It's been helpful to acknowledge that I'm, I'm, I'm new at this and I'm learning too and actually have people. I've, we've had great uh, 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 employees and friends and mentors who have uh, coached me and said, hey, hey, hey. We can't be doing that. We got to be going this way. It's like I, I see, I, and I appreciate that, and that helps a lot. Um, as a, it's a weird transition, a very strange transition to go from being uh, uh, the person uh, writing the code to uh, helping other people who are much better at that than you. Uh, give them the autonomy and the authority to to, to run with that. And it's really fun when it when you get to see a whole team working and you get to see uh, so much productivity uh, that you could never do yourself uh, in because you've been able to bring such interesting people together. So I think being humble is really important. I think learning from your mistakes and learning from your lessons and acknowledging that you'll make those mistakes is really important. Um, and making sure everybody is on the same page and has the right incentives is, is very helpful. Um, and we'll keep learning. Uh, I don't think I'm done with my lessons yet. Uh, yeah. but. I think one thing too, people just like being around you. I think it's probably something that's underrated too. I think people just like being around Justin. I mean, that's what All I'll right. say. I think a lot of people just like right. hanging out with you, working with you, just pleasant person. And I think one big moment I observed, a big definitive milestone in terms of that leadership transition was when you and Colin got new headshots. Okay. <laughs> That's new headshots. Looking yeah. good, guys. I got the new headshots. Part, we're also I got new headshots, right? And it, it was a big, it's a big, big transition in my career when I got new headshots. I think it's a big moment mm -hmm. for anybody's career is when you finally get a professional headshot done. It's like, okay, now you're you know a whole different trajectory, whole different era. Uh, you don't want to do it too early, <laughs> but you also don't want to do it too late. So, uh, well, yeah. One recommendation, everyone: get professional headshots as early as possible. Yeah, something something I didn't even know. I say I just took a picture. It didn't be go spend the five hundred dollars, thousand dollars to get a good headshot done. It's invaluable. So uh, one 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 leadership lesson too. Um, um, and then 
could you talk about maybe like um lasting in terms of like hiring mm-hmm. uh the part of this leadership part you know one thing i'm observing is the biggest bottleneck for startups is no longer money it's just team building hiring kind of what, what kind of some tactics you've used early on to hire you recruit you you, you recruited a uh i forgot the cso's name from um kite or no, from, from maverick Maverick, yeah. So you've recruited some really top-notch executives. What were kind of some tricks and learnings, lessons you've learned from hiring, which is just so hard for every biotech company, no matter how much you've raised, whether you're seed or you're a big mega company. Like hiring is so hard. Yeah, um, there's a, a lot of interest in in, in talent right now, uh, and there's uh, a lot of people, especially on the science side, who may not realize quite how valuable they are to the industry right now. Uh, there's just such a need for for uh, for people with skills to do things like mammalian synthetic biology that, that traditionally weren't a job that, that would pay very well. Uh, I think it's important to know what you can offer as a company and be clear about it. And there are some things that we cannot offer as a company, as a small to little startup, and be clear about that. And if you're clear about it, and and uh, other people know what they want, you can you can arrive at a at a place where everybody, I think, can get what they want. But if you're not clear about it, or if uh, you try to compete against the big companies for with resources that you don't actually have i think you can run yourself into trouble so we try to be very clear um i think tapping into social networks as much as possible even though that can be hard um is really helpful your your friends and recruitment and and friends of friends uh is often very helpful um before COVID, giving talks and 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 uh, I guess that's coming back now, which is great. Uh, seeing people in person, meetups and things like that can actually be really a nice way to to meet new people and get out of your normal uh, comfort zone. Um, yeah, totally. It's a hard thing to do. Uh, very important though. Yeah, one thing I'll say, what I, what I love working with you, Colin, and I think a lot of other people do, is your high integrity. So people know with the Farler brothers, you know, high integrity, high integrity. It's like a, you know, you know, you're going to you trust them. They're going to tell you, you know, going to be transparent about what they're doing. I think it's the reason why people like are attracted to Saratini. It's just like it's a very high integrity organization. I think you've built that in your culture. Um, and I think, you know, this, this podcast and a lot more in the future is, you know, you, you're already a superstar. Mm-hmm. Now it's just about unveiling that. It's no, you know, very easy work. So I think in the next few years, you know, you're going to be on some p- more panels and jet setting to, I don't know, what are some JP, you'll be JP Morgan. We'll go JP Morgan. Oh, okay. We'll be on some panel. You know, a lot of panels will be on a famous, famous co-founder and you'll be on a CNBC or I don't know, TV shows and stuff. Uh, Bloomberg or whatever. I always want to be in Bloomberg actually. Let's do Bloomberg one day. All right. Well, be- I appreciate your, your optimism, Josh. Uh, I'm so optimistic. I know how optimistic I am. I'm so I'm so positive. It's great. No, it's wonderful. It, it, it's it's a it's a good quality. Uh, I'm your you know I'm your movie agent, so I gotta I gotta be hyping you up. So uh, uh, okay, we're gonna publish this. This is a Friday. I'll yeah. send this on Monday, and uh, you know we'll get the hype started, hype cycle started. We'll do this again. I appreciate you doing this. Let me. I'm gonna press stop record right now, but uh, okay. 
and we'll, we'll, we'll talk. Well, thank you very much, Josh. I uh, really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, it's, it's, I, I think um, helping the the community understand uh, what's how these companies are built is helpful. I think there are a lot of people who are interested in it. I think the community is still pretty small, and I think you've yeah. done a great job of trying to get that 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 uh, communication. Uh, appreciate so it. I appreciate it. Um, a lot of chat. stories, and this is gonna be this is gonna be useful like ten years from now. Like they're gonna be like, whoa, we're gonna unearth. It's gonna See how it. much we were wrong. How much? How much? Uh, no, there's gonna be so much. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, take the Disney Vault. They're gonna be so inspired by Justin Farlow's story, and we'll do a follow up. And you know, this podcast will last a thousand years. Aliens will come down and listen to it. And like, oh, I'm Justin scared Fowler. about that, but I do appreciate. I, I would like the ability to come back in a in a little bit and 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 see what else we've learned. So. We're gonna do it. Okay, I really appreciate it. Let me press stop record right now. But I, I, I appreciate this.